podcast seemed much angrier than the previous podcast. This is being recorded. Hey, you are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the 27th of August to the 30, 31st of August. Uh, this week we're joined by Jackson, Jackson, even Castiglione, uh, who came in to talk about a performance which is happening as part of Melbourne Fringe Festival called Icon, where um, people make you into an icon, yeah. I guess. Is that right? That's kind of what happens. You can enter your name to become an icon for 24 hours or 48 hours. It was a very fun interview. Yeah. Also, uh, we had a bit of a chat about... Things that you don't have to pretend to like anymore. If you don't like something, just You're an adult. You're an adult. Move on. Exactly. Uh, and for Wednesday, Sarah had to write a poem. Oh, what a poem it was. Mm-hmm. And then we caught up with Mark Triffitt from Melbourne Uni talking about how the West is retreating from the promises of liberal democracy, a piece he wrote for Pursuit magazine. And then we caught off with, with Shisonki Zimang about her book, Always Another Country. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to Breakfasters. Uh, So, got it sorted. Uh, I uh, am getting... (laughs) Getting older. We're all getting older. So I think it's not just you. No. It's, the yeah. whole, it's the whole human yeah. race. Yeah, we're getting on, getting a bit long in the tooth. Um, oh. Yeah, I know. It's about that saying, isn't it? Like isn't great it? Do our teeth like keep growing? Oh, no, your gums recede. Oh, that's disgusting. Mm, so you get a bit long in the tooth. Oh, big that's, in the ear. Yeah, big in the ear. That'd Why don't good. they say that? I don't know. It'd make more sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. Do you get big in the ear? Your ears never stop growing. Mm. Like Dumbo the elephant. Your head doesn't shrink though, does it? No, your head stays the same size and your ears keep growing. Yeah. Can we can we move on from this? Okay, sorry. <laughs> no. No. Okay. Well, it's like the magic hour. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I was a bit part of for me part of growing up is just accepting. Um, things that I like and don't like. Yes, and it's just about me. And I don't have to worry about anybody else. Jeez, it does take a long time to know that it's sometimes okay not to do something that everyone else does. Yes. It takes a long time. I think yeah. it's taken me a very long time, yeah. nearly 40 years. So I was at a party uh, on Friday night and um, this is, it was a, a, a rap party. So these things, it, this is not a, um, it's not overcrowded. It's... And a private function. So it's very much like being at a birthday party or some sort of celebration where you kind of know everybody there. Um, And part of it was it got to the stage of the night where, you know, drinking champagne, having a lovely time, chatting to people, um, doing all all that. And then it got to the stage where, oh, yeah, it's time to hit the dance floor. Oh, Cool. Yeah, people just, you know, had – I think with the music was just on someone's phone and they just hooked it up to the DJ booth and yeah. someone was just, you know – Someone puts on Crazy in Love and then everyone's on yeah, the dance floor. off they go. Uh, so they put on some classic dance – I can't even remember what it was, but, you know, everyone's like, yep, yeah, on the dance floor. And I reckon I got about halfway through a song and I was like, do you know what? I don't like, I don't like dancing. Oh. Not into it. To I be get, honest, it doesn't surprise me. I can't imagine you dancing. Yeah, because I'll get uh, – of about thirty seconds into it, into a song, like I'll, I'll start off being excited. I'll go, yeah, woo, and then I thirty seconds in, I go, no, nah, I'm, I'm out. I've, I've done all my moves. Oh. I can't repeat <laughs> moves, and also my moves aren't that great anymore. <laughs> so I don't, I can't dance. Does that mean that you don't like dancing, or you don't like dancing for a long time? You like dancing in short bursts, yeah. or are you just self conscious? All of the above. Ah. Like I've, I think I've watched a lot of, um, you know, when you watch people dancing, especially from like the 80s or 90s and you go, no one looks good. No one looks good dancing in a group. Just shuffling. Yeah. Side to side. But what about just, because I don't know if they dance, I just kind of flail my arms around and move around dance for. That's that's what dancing is. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like I don't feel like I I don't feel pressure to actually do things that look good. I just kind of have a couple of drinks and then just, could you do that or you not enjoy that at all? 
Yeah, there's, yeah, that's the bit that I, that's the easy bit, just standing there going, yeah, woo, look at me, and you kind of, you know, there's your arms going. Yeah. And do a bit of a side shuffle, so I'm doing it really well, it's great for radio. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, I mean that's, but, that, but I get very bored of that. Like, okay. Well, I'd just rather I, just stand there and talk to people. I think I kind of get partly what you're saying. Sometimes when you've been dancing for a couple of songs at a party, mm. you kind of end up with one or two people you don't know very well. Yes. Yeah. How uncomfortable is that? And then you kind of go, I feel like you're looking at each other with this kind of grimace thinking how do I kind of how shuffle do you bail? away and I've learnt now as an adult it's okay just to go cool just going to get a drink of water because yeah. I used to stay in that stay in that moment for oh, way too see, long this is what I do instead of going cool I'm going to get a drink of water I, I go I don't like this and I oh jeez <laughs> I don't like dancing. I'm just going to go stand over here. So and oh, that's, that's what good. I did. I suppose were like, yeah, saying I don't cool. like dancing is a bit different from saying I don't like this. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's I don't like fun. this very moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, I think that's all right. That's that's good. No, it is good. You've got to know yourself, what makes you comfortable. That's what it is, isn't it? Yeah. You start you know yourself. It's a, yeah. You go, yeah. Not everyone has to like everything. It's different strokes for different folks. Yeah. Like when you realise you can say no to onion in salads. That was a big deal for me. Yeah, you don't like onion. Not, fre- not, not fresh onion. I have it cooked on a sausage. But oh, yeah. And Andrew always made us salads with onion in it. And yeah. I'd go to friends' houses and there'd be onion and things. And then I just realised you can just say no. Say, oh, oh. See, I had the opposite. I realised you could just go, oh, just have it. Like oh. mushrooms on pizza. I used to never – I was never really into mushrooms. Like I'm just – not that big of a fan, but mushrooms on on. So I'd always go, oh, I don't like mushrooms, and I and I pick it off. Ah. But now it's like, oh, just leave them there; they're all right. Yeah, but there's a difference between. I think it's good to be open minded about things, and it's good to sometimes force yourself to do to try things that you wouldn't otherwise yes. do, or you maybe think maybe that's not for me, but I'll try it once and see if I like it. I think that's yeah. a good thing to do, but totally down with you with the idea that some things just okay. I don't like it. Other people like it. That's fine. What if what do you, what do you don't like that other people do? Oh, so many things. Like for instance, I came Hugging. with you guys to the women's football once. Oh yes, you did. Did yeah. I? Yeah, gave that a go. That yeah. was the first football game I'd ever been to. Wasn't? Did you have a nice time? No, no, no I didn't. <laughs> you didn't I couldn't tell at all. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's like I, I wanted to support it. I know you guys are into it, and also you know we were having that segment on. It, it was very yes. Um, very good and everything, and so I thought I would come along and give it a try. Also, I didn't say at the time, but I hadn't actually brought my glasses, so I found it very difficult to see very much. I think you did say that halfway through the match. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, did, you definitely did say <laughs> that. To see anything that was going on whatsoever. Yeah, was there something that you did a, a lot of? Like if you – like I'm thinking, was, was there something – like you had a you just kept on, doing kept doing like that's just going to a thing you didn't you didn't like to begin with and, yeah. and still not liking yeah. it. Yeah, um, I various kinds of socialising. I felt like that when I was a kid. Like I'd always feel like you'd be invited to some party or whatever, and you'd feel like you'd sort of have to go. And if you weren't going, or if you weren't doing something on a Friday night, it meant you were like a loser or whatever. Yes. And so I'd force myself to go to these events or social events. Staying in on a Friday night. How good Staying is that? Friday night is the best. Oh, what a Oh, but you know God, what I mean? like, the moment when you know it's okay yeah. to stay on the couch on a Friday or Saturday night. Yeah. You're not oh. going to miss out well, on When you're anything. 19, it's like the worst thing. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm home on Friday night. What kind of loser am I, you know? I just it, think it about was... all the fun that everyone else is having. Yeah. That's what yeah. I used to think. And now I realise there is no fun. No. I'd be kissing <laughs> people and stuff. What, yeah. Yeah. What if the love of my life is out there tonight? Yeah. And they no, never were. No, they'll keep. Yeah. <laughs> they will keep. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Your tune to Breakfast is here on Triple R. It is 6.15 in the morning. It's a Wednesday. It's This is, was a very popular segment over Radiothon. Some people subscribe to Wednesday specifically. Mm. It is Wednesday. Uh, so you got the dare this week and you'd think after a couple of weeks of time we would have prepared something for you, but once again in fine form, in a panic, we texted each other last night. Yep, at 5pm after you'd been in a movie, well, we found out that Jeff was going to be away. Sick, you texted us yesterday, Arvo, and I texted Jez just to make sure she knew because we had a few things coming up today and uh, she was in a movie and... 
it wasn't until you got out of the movie at 5.30 that you got a series of panicked texts from me <laughs> just saying, Jez, look at your emails. <laughs> Jez, I need a Wednesday. Because yeah. I did go and see Black Klansman, which goes for like three hours. Yeah. So right. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the longest movie you could possibly have been yeah. in during this state of panic that I was yeah. in. It was a really great movie. I had a lovely afternoon. I oh, know. <laughs> Good on you. Uh, you know, I was spiralling at home. <laughs> Anyway, uh, but I got it, and those I got the text messages. It's funny I got your text message, and then about four hours later, I got the text from um, from Jeff. And That's weird. Yeah, yeah. It just took a really long time to get. Unless to Unless he forgot to text you and then was trying to pretend. No, no, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, yeah, it was just it was backdated. So yeah, right. Yeah, that's weird. Thank, thanks, Telstra. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, it was lovely. So um, amidst all our. Um, panic about Jeff, uh, we thought we, I'd need to come up with a dare. Yes. And well, good was, on you because if, I, if I'd been in your position, I, I didn't want to have to do a dare, but frankly I couldn't be bothered coming up with one either. Mm. I think it is it is a tricky part of the job, mm. I'll admit that. <laughs> but also that is my job of, you know, that's what I do every day. Sure. Come up with dares for people. Yeah. Yep. You are the dear master. <laughs> I'm the, no. Do you know, I just get online sometimes and go, fun fun dares for kids. Do you find that we've got a theme in our dares? So it comes back to, well, mm-hmm. yesterday you, you, your first dare was ask someone I, with another. I thought about a repeat. Yeah. Because technically no one completed this dare because I made mine Because you up. lied about it, yeah. This is the dare where um, I had to, uh, when it was... Walking the dogs, and I had to suggest to someone else that our dogs should breed. And it's funny that you should say that because just as you texted me that I'd been standing with another greyhound owner discussing our greyhounds, it was a male. The other mm. greyhound was a male, and Ralph is obviously male. So I don't think the breeding would have worked, but I thought, Jesus, I'm so lucky I got out of that deck because I didn't want to do that one. Yeah. Anyway, so, and then I thought, what's something you, you've got a limited amount of time? Yeah. I wasn't leaving home again for the evening. Yes. And I thought... We've already tricked our partners too much, so it couldn't involve tricking Andrew. Yeah. And also, I like to avoid tricking the general public in terms of, you know, tricking... I don't like the public kind of ones where... Yeah, Jeff loves them. Yes. Jeff I don't loves like having other public. victims. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I wouldn't think of them as victims, but yes, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So, I thought... Did this kind... The one you... This kind of had people. This was kind of involved the public. The one that you gave me in the end. Yes, but not in a harmless way. Yeah, in a harmless way. Yeah, like I, you know, there's involving the public, and then there's involving the public where they go, "What the f is going on?" I I want to avoid the "What the f is going on?" Sure. So uh, your dare, and I went back to uh, when you shone in your dare, where you rewrote the Breakfasters theme song. Oh yeah, and I thought, well. Hey, if you and I thought I could get you something to do something, uh, some sort of public display on Facebook or whatever, yeah, um, and something that you would actually do. So I actually think this is harder posting something on Facebook because you're posting to possibly an audience of however many hundreds of friends you have. Yes, it's harder than going this up to one where, stranger. Yeah, this is where the dare part comes into yes. it, right? So you couldn't get out in the in the public. I thought maybe I'll just get you to stand out in the street and yell something. Um, Anyway, I made you write, I said, how about you write a poem dedicated to the Tigers, put it up on Facebook. Yeah. And this is what I said to the Tigers and I thought maybe I might make it you write it to another another club. But I thought you wouldn't do that. You go, no, I'm not doing that. I actually would because I could just write one about how shit another club was and it would make more sense. No, it had to be a dedication. Oh, yeah. okay, right. Yeah, I, thought, I probably would have written it anyway. I just didn't want to wear another club's colours to my game because it's bad luck. Okay. And you gave me that dare. So, yes, you told me to write a poem mm-hmm. about Richmond. It was so draining. I couldn't even think of how to write a poem anymore. Poetry is a returning theme in this in these days. We often have poems or rhymes. Yes. Um, and so I wasn't allowed to tell anyone this was a dare either, except I did tell one of my friends in a messenger. I said to her, because she's a tiger sound, I said, oh, my God, I need to write a poem. And oh, so- Bit of help. That's okay. But then she couldn't help. She said, nah, I can't help you. Oh. I went, okay, great. <laughs> so then I wrote this poem. I decided to write like a, this is a limerick. I think that's what you call it. Yes. Anyway, and I wrote this and posted it on my wall with unprompted at 9pm at night with no explanation. Yep. There once was a tiger called Dusty. His don't argues were never too rusty. 
Known for his cool hair and dead shark eyes stare, it was the cosmos that made him most lusty. See, that's really good. Thanks. It's really good. Is it? Yeah. Genius. But do you know what's funny? I sat there in total embarrassment as it went for 15 minutes with no one liking it. <laughs> oh, God, do, you want to... do you know what it's done? <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, Jesus, I look like a mental person. I didn't know what to do. I, I didn't know you could feel so much social media shame. Oh, my. Do you know, actually, do you know what started me with this was I was just going to get you to write on Facebook something like, does anyone want to go to the park with me? <laughs> Like right now. Yeah, and just see what kind of reaction that would get. And I thought, oh, it'd be imagine if no one responded to that and how sad that would be. I was already sad that people had clearly seen my poem and were going, oh, what's going on? And so my friend Brody that I told, she actually love hearted it. And then she said to me, aren't you allowed to give an explanation? And I said, no, that's the whole point is I've got to post it and not have a frigging explanation for it. But thank God. Do you know what happened? Uh, it, people got it on board. It turned into a thing. Yeah. Like, I, I, it turned into a thing within five. So, no one copped comments at all, like, for ages. Then Dono. Dono stepped Dono, up. Dono, our sports guy, comes through with the goods. I've got to thank you. Thank you, Dono, because he wrote a poem, one that was much better than mine. He just wrote a poem. He just replied by writing another poem or a limerick. So, he wrote this There once was a hawk called Ben, grew a dirty moustache now and then. Thought this year he'll cull it, grow out a grouse mullet. Gary Ayres gives it 10 out of 10. See? Friggin' great. That is so a great. good. But I love that people just went, oh, I see what she's doing. She's writing a limerick about her favourite player. I'll write one about my favourite player. Yeah. Uh, Can you read Andrews? Andrews doesn't make any... Andrews got an extra line in his. So yeah. It doesn't, yeah. <laughs> so Andrew doesn't know that. So, and a bit of artwork. And though. a bit of artwork. <laughs> so Andrew was in sitting in another room to me and I had not discussed the deal with him. <laughs> and then he pops up and just writes, there once was a man called Dane Swan, the great man who Dusty based his game on. Swan had all the moves, did it years before. Now Dusty lives in Swanee's shadow and passes out in the off-season on Swanee's <laughs> bathroom floor. It doesn't even rock. <laughs> it is. It kind of fades in in the end. Yeah, it starts out really good. I didn't want to tell him he was so proud of himself, and I, I didn't want to go. You've got one meant too many. You did lines not follow the rules no. of the limerick, uh, which he thought was hilarious. Uh, and then he wrote the end. Uh, actually, later in the night, I did tell him that it was a dare, and he goes, "Oh, well, my poem's better." And uh, then there was, and a- then see, so this is I started to read just before I went to bed, and yeah. um, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to have to write one." For the bombers, I'm gonna have to pick. Yeah, a I can't believe you haven't picked a bomber. You know, there's another one. Yeah, this is why I didn't do it because I went, oh, just J.K. Derek Kennedy, mega hurt, long term mega hurt. J.K. popped up and wrote a great bombers one. Yeah, so I can't, I can't improve on perfection. Yeah, you can't. Actually, this is perfect. So. I just love that this started. My friend Brody popped up and she's like, this is a thing. People are yeah. just going to be posting footy limericks on your wall forever now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought about. Um, Maybe not doing it for for a bomber's play. Oh, maybe you can do it for. There's so many other players. You can do it for any player you want. Like there once was a a kanga named Brown. Oh, uh, he had the l- curliest Curly's locks. hair on his crown. Yeah, uh, he kicked. I don't know how to do the rest. I'll have to think about it later. He he had the curliest locks in town. Yeah. Well, anyway, sorry. We'll you cut. gotta you gotta write one now. I'll do it by the end of the show. Right. If anyone else wants to write one, oh, they can send yeah. it in. Text it. What's our text number? Sorry, four double six. Oh, no. How have you forgotten double, it? Sorry, four double eight. Oh, oh no. mate. I have forgotten it. There's something wrong with our brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think I like, I like that I've never, I've never bothered remembering the text line. Jeff and I have never bothered remembering it because you can. Yeah, yeah, just because I had it written down. That's all right. I'm gonna read, I want to read you JK's. Think about it because I want people to text us. So this is JK's, which I think actually wins. There once was a bomber called Franger. He knew how to take a good hanger. From South Australia, Kane Corns called him a failure. Now he's the AFL's number one ranger. Yay! I love the Cornsy reference as well. I, like, I do love that. And then he posted, you know what I liked about it? He posted pictures of that. Of the hanger? Br- yeah, the mark of the year. <laughs> From multiple <laughs> angles. Because <laughs> people got involved. Yeah, people yeah. Were like, people were like, oh, Declan, yeah. Declan <laughs> Kelly was like that mark though. Brom Burton was giving it. I, I, it just became a little... Zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven. Please send us your weird footy limericks. I think I'm still trying to remember it. It is up on our Facebook page. I'm pretty sure. 
Didn't we post it there? Our actual number. I could just look it up. It's in my phone somewhere. <laughs> but I'm so proud of this, what this has become. And I'm so glad that I haven't been left. I love that the people in my life are silly enough. and Just to, to jump on just board. Just to jump on board. Like yeah, it yeah. actually made me like my friends even more and the people that I know because I'm like, I, you've just seen me write this stupid limerick for no reason and you've all just decided to get on board and write limericks yeah, about your favourite players. It just players. looks like you're in, in footy, footy finals fever. Yeah. By the way, our text line is 0466981027. I think that's what I said. Yeah, it might be. Sorry, 4669981027. Yes. Uh, oh, it's it's live. This post is going off. There you go. I don't understand. Remember, you got some friends right. listening right now. That's yeah, good. Yeah. Uh, but that was it. It's a good day, Jez. Thank it you. Actually, it's warmed my heart. Yeah, I hope it's warmed a lot of people's hearts. This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Ever wanted to know what it's like to be an icon? Well, at this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival, the team at Field Theory will make that happen for one lucky person. To tell us more about it, we have Jackson Castiglione. Hey, guys. How are you Hi. going? Hi, good. Good. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, so, first question, how do you make someone an icon? Oh, that, that's a great question. Well, uh, you create uh, a large-scale festival about them um, <laughs> based in Federation Square. Um, you ask a city to try and sign up for the lottery to become an icon and then uh, you randomly choose someone and then you study that person for 48 hours. So we go into their lives for 48 hours and then create the festival. So this is when you... When you study someone's life, when you go in and study their life for 48 hours, what does that mean exactly? Because that means you're... You're going to be right there all the time. Well, we, that's right. We, we, we've sort of set ourselves a you know a, a rough approximation of you know we have to be within sort of five meters of the icon at, at all times. Um, uh, obviously, Do you talk to them. Yeah, well, yeah, we're, when it's appropriate. If they say, yeah. "Look, guys, I need a bit of space," then we'll just you know. Give flip. them another meter. Yeah. So you're asking just to <laughs> be clear. Open up your phone. This is for a fringe festival, and you're. The idea is that you ask someone to say, I want to be an icon, and then you choose that person and then you stick around them for 24, 48 hours to try and get to know them. Is that right? Well, uh, sorry, I was, I was diving into the esoterics of uh, <laughs> yeah. iconicism. But, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a large-scale artwork for the Fringe Festival. Yeah. And what we're doing is we're currently asking people, we're doing a citywide call-out, if you're in Melbourne, please sign, you know, sign up to become an icon from the Fringe website, then that person is chosen at random, okay? So that person is chosen at random and then once they're selected, five members of our artist collective, Field Theory, will go to that person's house uh, or or wherever. You know, we'll be outside the front in a camper if we have to be. We'll be (laughs) on the landing floor if if we have to be and we will study their life. Well, you know... Maybe that's, you know, okay, I'm trying. You're eating porridge this morning. Yep. I'm going to try some porridge. Uh, you know, you've just had um, a chat with your best friend. You know, do you want any advice about that? Or, you know, we're just, just taking on board what what that person's life's like. And, and it, the sort of the eccentricity, eccentricities of their life as well as the sort of, I guess, the broader brush strokes. And once you've got all this information over the next 48 hours... You're going to whack it up on a big screen, yes? Well, yeah, but it's also going to be a, a physical festival. So we've, really? we've all been to Fed Square and we know the types of festivals we have there. Yeah. We're going to kind of create one. So, for example, we might have a little uh, improvised food truck selling, uh, uh, you know, oh. what that person <laughs> oh had God. for breakfast. You know, and so a city can kind of experience that little window into their lives. And you're going to get the person to come along and be kind oh, of... Oh, they'll be venerated, absolutely. Icon. What, what, can you give us an insight into how you're going to venerate them? And look, we don't want to give too much away, but we're thinking of quite a high sort of chair where they can sort of... That's what up. I was imagining! Yeah. Yeah. A throne, perhaps? A throne. <laughs> Maybe they'll make a grand entrance in their... Um, uh, in their vehicle that they the that they ride, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, or maybe if they <laughs> if they ride around, we'll, we'll decorate their bike and ask them to ride into Fed Square on the red carpet or something like oh, that. You know, I'm kind of imagining like the king and queen of Moomba, but in a oh, slightly yes. weirder fashion. Yeah, yeah. There there are those aspects, but <laughs> there's also a randomness to it, and we're kind of. 
we're kind of asking as well, we're asking questions about, I don't know, what is fame, what is celebrity, you know, what what are the things that we kind of take interest in in a sort of Instagram world. Mm. Mm. Tapping yeah. into the mundane even. Yeah, and, and what's what's interesting about mundane, what's interesting about someone's breakfast cereal menu? Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> if Kim Kardashian posts up the cereal that she's having on Instagram, everyone yeah. wants to know about yeah. it. <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. and it's probably sponsored. You know, yeah. or, you know. it's a bit reminiscent of. Do you remember when? Um, who was the, the band in the bubble? Oh yeah, regurgitator. I was thinking that as well. Yeah. Actually, yeah, it's that kind of thing where you know everyone can see, you know, that everyday kind of stuff. But I suppose it's a little bit different because they're you know. They not don't start out being a celebrity, yeah. But they will by the end, yeah. And it's also, I guess, the mediation of their life through the festival. You know, it's like yeah. how we choose to present that. Like, I think it's really important, uh, an important part of the artwork. And there's also a lot of sense of humour in it as well, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're kind of we're looking for people. Perfect. Oh, how, how, how do you expect many people to put their hands up? We've had we've had actually quite unexpected the amount of interest we've had in the project really? already, and what's really exciting is just the like broad diversity of people signing up. Like, so there isn't like a certain type of person that's getting yeah, like you know, I think this is as a collective, this is a fir- our first sort of like super large scale artwork, and it's like okay, is it are we just playing to an you know, intellectual inner city Melbourne audience or, you know, sort of Australian audience. But, you know, there's like a a, quite a substantial interest outside of that, which is so exciting. Like lots of non-art people are like, you know, pick me. I'm into this. (laughs) Tell us a little bit more about field theory in in general, the, uh, the collaboration that you have and how that all got started. Oh, cool. So we've been going together, going together, God, sounds like I'm in the 50s or something. We've been going steady. <laughs> I don't know how other, you guys do it. Gave each other your rings. And it's a bit like that, yeah, making out. Uh, whoa. No, we're, we're not ever. Um, we, yeah, so we've been, <laughs> we've been together, working together for, uh, for about 10 years now and um, we are six artists and we have all different backgrounds. So might have a background in visual art or in video or in performance. And um, uh, we kind of come together, sometimes collide together <laughs> and make like crazy projects. So we often work in public art. So we're kind of really interested in, I guess, everyday people or people that aren't involved in the arts and kind of incorporating them into our artworks or centering artworks around them. Yeah. Are you a really confident person? Because I think, I mean, (laughs) well, because, you know, a lot of people are really terrified of this kind of thing of public art or of being asked to participate in public in front of people. Do you find that you only get really confident people or? It's a really good question. We, I, I think what is our job as artists is to kind of make that person at ease is, is that's a really important thing. I think yeah. like the worst example of participation is, you know, being at the Edinburgh Fringe and seeing comedians get people up on stage and humiliate them, which is that kind of English tradition. And it can, it can be very funny at times, but, but most for, of the time... Usually not for the person not, on stage. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So for us it's like it's kind of gently allowing that person into our world as makers and hopefully it's reciprocated that that person allows us into their world and we kind of, you know, uh, psychologically hold their hand to make something fantastic together and we've got a couple of projects on the ball at the moment that are kind of doing that and we're learning so much from those communities we're sort of working with. Yeah, right. Great. Yeah. Well, if you want to hold the hands of field theory <laughs> and become an icon. You can go together with them. <laughs> anyway, to sign up for a chance to win the lottery to go to the Melbourne Fringe, go to melbournefringe.com.au and you have until the 12th of September to sign up. <laughs> Thanks, Jackson. Driving drive still on. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.
You're tuned to Breakfast here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The West's Age of Retreat is the title of an interesting article in Melbourne Uni's online Pursuit magazine. Its author is Dr Mark Triffitt from the School of Social and Political Science at Melbourne University. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. In the piece, you argue that Western-style liberal democracy is everywhere in retreat. Can you give us some examples of what that might look like? Well, I think uh, retreat is, is sort of manifested in a few ways. I mean, there's the geographical retreat where... I um, mean, the point of the article was that, you know, 30 years ago when communism collapsed, everyone in the West sort of, you know, said in a very triumphant way that this was the end of history and that liberal Western democracy was going to be the default political system of the 21st century and everyone would live happily ever after. And, you know, 20 or 30 years down the track, I think, you know, the really significant, you know, aspect of this point in history is just how... Uh, different the reality has been and that, you know, liberal democracy is now, you know, retreating from, you know, um, from those countries, you know, which sort of threw off their authoritarian shackles and, and embraced democracy. Now they're retreating back into sort of quasi forms of authoritarianism where they crack down on free speech and, you know, rig elections and all, all that sort of thing. But the, I think the really significant thing about it is that within Western societies, you know, which is you know, where it all came from, you know, across the West and particularly in core democracies like the United States and, you know, parts of Western Europe and also in Australia, average citizens are shutting off and disengaged from, you know, liberal democracy. I mean, all the statistics across um, these democracies, including Australia, is showing that, you know, trust, engagement, respect for political leaders um, is at historic lows. So that's the second form of retreat actually going on within uh, the West. Um, and I think the other really uh, sort of worrying trend is that particularly young among young people, um, uh, there was a very, uh, very pertinent study that was released uh, last year which showed that young people in the West are starting to favour authoritarian-style governance. Uh, as opposed to the West, because they they don't relate to Western style democracy, they don't believe it actually serves their interests. So, in the absence of attachment to you know that sort of system, they're starting to gravitate to what's called strongman politics. Well, what's the appeal of an author- authoritarian system then? It's actually a very good question. I, I, I think um, part of it is to do with a perception that democracy because it's so messy and because you know what people necessarily see is a bunch of you know people just shouting at each other and maybe not you know achieving anything mm. is the idea that you know maybe we need a system that guarantees outcomes regardless of whether it rides roughshod over the sorts of things that we want i mean i, I don't think it's a sort of a conscious sense among young people. I mean, I teach a lot of young people. Um, and my sense is that, you know, that they, you know, free speech and freedom of choice, that's, you know, pretty much what they want. But, um, you know, because the only system that they really are familiar with, which is democracy, is not seen to be working, they start to sort of gravitate into the sort of vague notion that maybe if we just have someone who can get stuff done. Well, after last week in politics, you could imagine if there was a figure right now who stood up who was Trump-like and said, drain the swamp, this system isn't working, that that would be very appealing. And that's exactly right. So it's not that people sort of say, oh, yeah, I want some sort of authoritarian system. It's almost by default yeah. because they... just want s- someone to do something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or at least, you know, it, it's not only the, the doing, the, the stuff, you know, getting policy done, but... It gets back to this idea that, you know, we're basically a representative government where every four years we vote and we have our heads counted and, you know, we get the people that oppose, you know supposedly represent us. But, you know, I think the general sense is that the political system doesn't necessarily represent the common interest. And that's always been an issue with democracy. But I think it's much more profound, particularly among young people. Mm. If, we, yeah, if, we, if we go back to the, the fall of communism, though, mm. part of that equation about the end of history wasn't yep. just the expansion yep. of liberal democracy, it was the expansion of free markets. Yeah, but exactly. one of the things we've seen over the last... 30 yeah. years is that the free market has led to a disparity in wealth yeah. 
um, you know, it's almost like New Gilded Age where mm. wealth for ordinary people has declined, mm. whereas the rich are enjoying almost stratospheric levels of prosperity. Doesn't that render the, the classical model of democracy very moot? I mean, how can you have yeah. equality of power between citizens if yeah. some people are so much more wealthy and powerful than other people? Exactly. And I think that's a really good point, Jeff. And that that's, you know, with, with my article, I, I talked about retreat also in terms of the retreat of the promise of what you know free markets would do i mean they've never obviously worked in a way that um you know creates prosperity for everyone it's not hardwired to do that there's always disparities but the gap between rich and poor uh, you know it's argued you know you know whether it's happening or not but you know um you know, you have to only have to look at America, where you know that was the epicenter of you know prosperity and opportunity, and you know social mobility. You know, some of that was about you know um, ideals as opposed to reality. But uh, in the article, I described it as an economic caste system now, and that's largely because social mobility in the U.S. just doesn't necessarily exist anymore. And you compare that to where. You know, America was, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, you know, where social mobility was part of the American dream. Um, so the promise of what free markets would do post-communism is the best way of organising economic activity in the 21st century is falling well short in terms mm. of, you know, the promise of opportunity and prosperity to the most maximum number of people. A really striking aspect of this, and Sarah and I were just talking about it off air, is the mm. arguments about the internet. I mean, mm. back in the day when inter- internet was first a thing, people were talking it was going to facilitate direct democracy, massive expansion mm. of democratic activity. Nobody talks about that anymore. Instead, everyone talks about it as this, you know, Orwellian surveillance system. And uh, to me, you know, personally, I just I think that is the biggest disparity between the promise and, and the reality over the last twenty or thirty years. I mean. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when um, uh, you know this all started, and 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 all the you know the the the, the things that you spoke about, Jeff. It, it's supposed to connect people. It's supposed to inform people. It's supposed to you know create you know the common public sphere um, that facilitates you know the sorts of you know rational debate mm. that we, we you know that we're capable of. And that happens to some extent, but I think particularly over the last four or five years where the monopolisation of the internet uh, has just intensified remarkably uh, between four or five companies. So basically the internet is dominated by two or three platforms. Um, I mean, a classic case, you know, people were talking about Facebook and privacy a few months ago and, and someone pointed out that for many people in less developed countries, the internet... Facebook is the internet, which when you think yeah. about that, it's just absolutely extraordinary that yeah. one company has become so dominant in terms of dominating the sphere, which was supposed to be, you know, highly diversified, um, highly competitive and not subject to the arbitrary black box algorithms of a particular company in terms of what people get in terms of their information, the way they connect. So, you know, and... As you say, Jeff, the whole idea of how what was a public realm, you know, transforms itself into a highly monetarized system where mm. <laughs> we literally become products as consumers because our activities and thoughts um, become products that get brought and sold, not necessarily without our <laughs> understanding of what's going on. And, of course, yeah, yeah. all of this is taking place in the context of a catastrophic environmental destruction mm. that seems to be yeah. um, increasing at exponential rate. Uh, we are running out of time. Do you have any sort of direction that you would point to as an alternative or as a, as a way out of the problems that we're in? How do you fix it? Yeah. Well, it's actually <laughs> in the next five minutes, we'll, we'll attempt to do that. <laughs> But but it does speak to the so I think some you know pretty fundamental issues of our age. My, my basic thesis is that we don't quite understand the nature of the disruption over the last twenty thirty years. I mean we we talk about it in terms of digital transformation and you know, um, you know high hyper sort of global issues like climate change. But the last twenty thirty years for most of us has been you know you know particularly benign in terms of you know there hasn't. You know, been a cataclysmic world war. There hasn't been, 
you know, the GFC was obviously very serious, but, you know, in terms of how the world has relatively recovered from that. So I think we underestimate just how significant the change has been. And my basic thesis is that, you know, we talk about disruption in terms of business and tourism and communication, but our basic governance structures in terms of our democratic system, the way that governments operate, the way they engage with citizens really has not moved in any significant way. I mean, look at Australia. Its federation hasn't really been changed for the last 100 years. So, so many of the things that we try to use to address, you know, big public policy problems in the 21st century is using the architecture that's fundamentally out of date. So, I mean, that seems a bit abstract, but I I just don't think, for example, we can solve any significant public policy challenge in the 21st century with the institutional architecture that we have in terms of democratic systems that we have at the moment. I mean, last year, last week's a classic. Mm. I mean, you know, (laughs) yeah, you know, that was the story. A bunch of people just going at it hammer and tongs, and you know, creating the precedent for the next hammer and tongs sort of leadership, (laughs) whatever. And that's politics. I mean, that's not to say things don't get done, but um, our governance system basically is not equipped to deal with the challenge of the 21st century. And and again, that sounds abstract. And how do we actually fix up the minutiae? There are plenty of ideas out there uh, and they get written about and they get talked about, but they don't necessarily get connected together. No. Big challenges out there, but uh, the article, The West's Age of Retreat, is a good place to start. It's in Pursuit Magazine. You can find that online. We've been talking to its author, Dr. Mark Triffitt from Melbourne Uni. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. Always Another Country, a memoir of exile and home. It's a book out now in Australia through text. Its author is Sisonke Zimong, who's in in Melbourne for a number of events at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. I think two today and one tomorrow. Right now, though, she's joining us in the studio. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Hello. This is a memoir that begins in Zambia where your father was stationed as a guerrilla fighter in the struggle against apartheid and you write about a childhood growing up being surrounded by men who you call firsts. What does a first mean in that context? So the people and mainly men but lots of women too that I grew up around were firsts in the sense that they were people who had left South Africa because it was a racist country and wanted to be free. And so they were often the first doctor who had been trained in the, um, you know, in Germany or the first nuclear physicist or the first vaccine researcher or the, right. So they were uh, an incredibly um, accomplished group of people, largely because that's kind of what you have to be if you're going to sort of leave your country behind, you know, yeah. you're, you're that person. You've got to be the trailblazer. Exactly. Mm. You've got to be the trailblazer. Exactly. So they were trailblazers, pla- blazers, absolutely. Uh, I, I was struck reading it. You really capture this extraordinary sense of optimism in the post-colonial world, something that it's kind of easy to for, to forget now. It's sort of something kind of really refreshing, re- remembering that there was a time when the post-colonial world was really kind of breaking through and all of this energy was being unleashed. Absolutely. Like, For my sisters and I, growing up in the 1970s, we were the kind of repository for the dreams of Africa. Um, Africa wasn't a basket case yet, right? So we didn't have years of corrupt leaders and, you know, horribly managed economies. What we had was that in front of us and we didn't know it was in front of us. So what we had was this new generation of kids who were... um, you know, going to school and all their parents' aspirations were injected in these kids. So we were that cohort of kids for whom, like, the world was possible and Africa was free. We had all just come into independence. And so it was pretty remarkable to be born a South African kid living in post-independence Africa. So in South Africa, they refer to children who were born after Nelson Mandela became president as the born freeze. But my sisters and I and that generation of exile kids, we were born free, right? So it was a pretty amazing time. Uh, There's one stage where uh, you wrote in the book, you you went to school in Canada and uh, there's a story where you were racially abused and... um, so the story about how your dad reacted to the whole thing. Can you tell us about that? Sure. 
So when I was 10, we moved to Canada because part of um, being in exile is that you face the prospect of statelessness. And so Canada did for us what uh, Australia has done for many people, which it doesn't seem to want to do anymore. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Um, and so we we moved to Canada and uh, it was Canada in the 1980s. So there were not a lot of black people around. Yeah. <laughs> and so my sisters and I, if you look at like the school photos, are like always the only ones. And so very um, early, we had just moved to Ottawa and um, and I was on the playground after school and um, this kid called me a monkey and the others sort of joined in. Mm. And I was so humiliated. I was just mortified, right? And 10 is like that. Everything matters, right? And yes. that, like that's never okay, but also like you're 10 and it's just this very awkward age. And I cried and I left and I went home and I told my mom who appropriately sort of comforted me. And then my dad came home and we told him the story and he was outraged. He was so angry at me for crying. He was like, what kind of coward am I raising, right? The man is a freedom fighter, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom is like, she's a child. What are you talking about, right? <laughs> this is the family that I grew up in, right? So my dad's thing was always like, if something happens to you, don't take the first punch, but you swing back, right? Yeah. This is this is a very proud man who was not prepared to stay in South but Africa. He, he, that he said that <laughs> we we do not turn the other cheek. We in don't the, turn the other cheek in this household. household. That was yeah. constant in that was a constant part of our upbringing. So my dad is like, okay, so we go to school. So he, so because I mean, so part of the lesson you know in our family was always that racial being racially abused is not your fault. It's the person who's a racist's fault. And so accountability has to lie with the institution or the person, not yourself. So it was never an option for me to internalize the racism, right? So I felt humiliated because it was embarrassing. But ultimately, as a kid, I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. So my dad takes me to school and we sit down with the principal and the principal is like, it's Canada in the 1980s. Sorry, you know, this kind of stuff is going to happen. And my dad is like, really? Under your watch, you're prepared to say that it's okay for my kid for this to happen to her? And so my dad pushes back and he forces an apology. And so I was very embarrassed and I'm <laughs> walked back into my classroom and my dad is and my dad is waiting at the window and I go inside with the principal and the teacher and they whisper and then um, he says something happened yesterday to Sisonke that should not have happened and everybody said sorry Sisonke wow. that's so extraordinary yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really rad uh, you were in South Africa just after Mandela's release can you tell us something about what the mood was like at this historic occasion it was amazing I mean so as kids who grew up born outside the country where we should have been born um, Nelson Mandela was kind of the narrative device of our lives, right? So when you're constantly moving every few years, um, as a child, you need an explanation. And Nelson Mandela was our explanation. Um, Nelson Mandela went to prison and my father left South Africa to join his revolutionary army. So that that's the kind of chain of events. And so when Nelson Mandela becomes free, we will come home. That was what we were always told, you know, growing up as kids. So then when he does, we're kind of like, oh, wow, we never really thought it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so it happened, which was amazing, um, because obviously by the time we were teenagers, my sisters and I would roll our eyes when my parents talked about when we're free. It would be like, when Mandela gets out, we're like, that guy is never getting out. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and then he did. <laughs> and then we were home, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. So it was amazing. I was 17. I flew home like immediately. Uh, I already called it home, right? Because yeah. I was, we, we were always in limbo knowing that's the a, that's a difference between migrating somewhere and being in exile. In exile, you are waiting. Um, mm -hmm. And so it was a remarkable trip full of fights. I mean, we, were, we fought with every white person we could find. You, we were like, we're back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <this is> <laughs> so it was amazing. It was remarkable. I cannot, it, like, there's... You know, there's no way to describe what an incredible time that was. You now live in Perth, in Australia. What's your relationship like with South Africa now, personally? So I've been to South Africa six times this year. I was in South Africa ten times last year. So I haven't really left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I go back and forth a lot. My family is all there. Um, 
So I think for me, the real question is, what's my relationship like with Perth and with well, Australia, yeah. right? Um, so I'm forging a home here. I mean, this is like the kind of story of my life, like constantly being somewhere where I didn't think I was going to be. Yeah. And so having married an Aussie bloke um, who's from Perth um, and he decided, you know, he misses his family and he wants to be here and he wants the surf. We have great surf in South Africa, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> oh, you've got great whites in South Africa. Oh, I suppose you've got them in Perth, got them in Perth, as, well. Perth as well. There's a lot of great whites in Australia. Well, yeah. what's your experience in Perth been like then? Because, I mean, we've recently had the conversation about the white. Uh, so the white South African farmers that was raised um, by Dutton and at all, but that kind of came out of Perth. That yeah, you know. So I don't know what. How's it feel being in the centre of where that conversation is being held legitimately? So I wrote a piece in the Washington Post when Dutton first made those ludicrous comments. Yeah. Um, and you know my take on it uh, is you know oh, that was you okay. that was me oh, yeah, right. <laughs> recently, <laughs> penny drop <laughs> and recently um, you know Trump tweeted very similar sentiments this idea that there's a white genocide in South Africa and that white people um, on farms in particular are targets of uh, racialized violence mm. is obviously not just untrue but in in many ways I find it offensive given what yeah. we know about how, you know, someone tweeted the other day that like, gosh, this is the only genocide where the people who are supposedly doing the killing are like washing your shoes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> driving for you. <laughs> what a genocide. <laughs> like, so it's cl- it's just so patently untrue. And and in some ways, I think the real insult for lots of South Africans is this um, is to have that language given the remarkable grace that black people showed white people in South Africa. Mm. It's like we had this incredible drive of unity. This amazing man called Nelson Mandela who said, we draw a line in the sand and your citizenship rights are guaranteed and you will live in this country with no fear of retribution. And that's exactly what's happened for the last 26 years. So it kind of feels like, really? Mm. Wow. Mm. Don't say that. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because the, the the latter sections of your book are in part to do with your disenchantment with the ANC, and I guess how little in in some respects has changed. Particularly given that you know one of the driving forces behind the freedom struggle was the South African Communist Party with a, a, a program of social equality yeah. as well as political economy. We haven't got very much time, but. Do you have a sense of what went wrong, where where the strategic mistake was that, that, that led to the sort of disenchantment that you chronicle in the book? Yeah, I think there's a couple of places. So one is the expectations were always higher than the... The, the demand could ever be, right? We could never meet the demands of what people expected of freedom fighters because they were people who... Uh, who acted in very brave ways in an extraordinary time. And in ordinary times, they've acted like ordinary human beings. So in some ways, it's just life, right? Life, mm-hmm. the nature of life is that people are not heroes forever. They're heroes in a given time, and then they're just people. So part of what's happened in South Africa now, which is great, is that we, like Australians, have come to demand more accountability of our politicians because we see them not as our saviors, but simply as people who need to be held accountable. And I think that's a really healthy thing. I think the strategic mistake in South Africa was that we didn't, uh, we were very cautious and nervous about how the international community would view a new black government, Mm. uh, this last outpost of not just racism, but frankly, whiteness, which means there's a certain way in which the world is comfortable with white people handling money and isn't comfortable with black people handling money. And so I think we were very anxious about what that would mean. And so we acceded to the market, I think, way too much. So there were some radical concessions we made right at the beginning, which have made it really hard to deal with inequality now. Hmm. Fascinating. The book is an Always Another Country, A Memoir of Exile and Home. It's out through text. Uh, you can catch Sisonke Zimong in uh, three Melbourne Writers' Festival events, two today and one tomorrow. But thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.